Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Em again here. Welcome to the show today as we pick up where we left off last time, in the middle of a conversation between Job and one of his friends, Ilavaz. As I mentioned toward the end of the last episode, I have a few more thoughts from chapter 4 that I believe will help us set the stage, so to speak, as we hear more of Eliphaz's response to Job in today's episode. So, if you remember back in chapter 4, Eliphaz claims to have a word from God about what Job has done wrong. He implies that Job has brought this trouble on himself. But of course, we know the backstory happening behind the scenes here, so we know that Eliphaz is wrong, 100% wrong. Anyway, Eliphaz argues that suffering is a direct result of sin, so if Job would just confess his sin, his suffering would surely end. Eliphaz saw suffering as God's punishment, which according to him should be welcomed in order to bring a person back to God. In some cases, of course, this may be true, but it was not true with Job, so part of what Eliphaz says is true and part is false. We will actually see this play out in the conversations Job has with all of his friends throughout this book. Although Eliphaz shares some comments that are true, we see he made at least three wrong assumptions here. Number one, a good and innocent person never suffers. Number two, those who suffer are being punished for their past sins. And number three, Job, because he was suffering, had done something wrong in God's eyes. Truthfully, I hope we are all seeing here that Eliphaz's comments are an example of what we should try to avoid making false assumptions about others based on our own perceptions and expectations. Oh, how devastated and hurt Job must have been by this barrage of words Eliphaz is attacking Job with. Unexplainable and unimaginable grief, with debilitating pain, plus now accusation upon accusation of wrongdoing he did not commit, coming from one of his closest friends. Can you even imagine what Job is thinking and feeling at this point in his life? Oh my... And then there is a tone of Eliphaz's delivery of these words to Job. Oh, friends, he seemed so sure that the source of Job's trouble was sin. He seemed so confident in his reasoning about this situation. Sin causes suffering, and Job is suffering. Therefore, Job is somehow sinning. Unfortunately, his authoritative and arrogant tone that we already witnessed in chapter 4 continues right on into chapter 5 of his speech. The harshness of his words to his friends seemed to reveal not only a lack of humility, but also a lack of empathy. Ouch. Okay, so let's move on to today's study content. In an effort to show the conversational style the message version of the Bible provides, I plan to read from this translation versus a New Living Translation for the conversations between Job and his friends in the next few episodes. If at all possible, I would encourage you to read along with your preferred Bible translation, or be sure to read your study version of these chapters at a later time to compare them. I will place a link in the show notes to the YouVersion's parallel mode that I often use in my study time to view the verses from various Bible translations side by side. Let's begin our reading of Job 5, titled, Don't Blame Fate When Things Go Wrong. Call for help, Job, if you think anyone will answer. To which of the holy angels will you turn? The hot temper of a fool eventually kills him. The jealous anger of an idiot does her in. I've seen it myself, seen fools putting down roots, and then, suddenly, their houses are cursed. 
their children out in the cold, abused and exploited, with no one to stick up for them. Hungry people off the street plunder their harvests, cleaning them out completely, taking thorns and all, insatiable for everything they have. Don't blame fate when things go wrong. Trouble doesn't come from nowhere. It's human. Mortals are born and bred for trouble, as certainly as sparks fly upward. What a blessing when God corrects you. If I were in your shoes, I'd go straight to God. I'd throw myself on the mercy of God. After all, he's famous for great and unexpected acts. There's no end to his surprises. He gives rain, for instance, across the wide earth, sends water to irrigate the fields. He raises up the down and out, gives firm footing to those sinking in grief. He aborts the schemes of conniving crooks so that none of their plots come to term. He catches the know-it-alls in their conspiracies, all that intricate intrigue swept out with the trash. Suddenly, they're disoriented, plunged into darkness. They can't see to put one foot in front of the other. But the downtrodden are saved by God, saved from the murderous plots, saved from the iron fist. And so the poor continue to hope while injustice is bound and gagged. So what a blessing when God steps in and corrects you. Mind you, don't despise the discipline of Almighty God. True, He wounds. But he also dresses the wound. The same hand that hurts you, heals you. For one disaster after another, he delivers you. No matter what the calamity, the evil can't touch you. In famine, he'll keep you from starving. In war, from being gutted by the sword. You'll be protected from vicious gossip and live fearless through any catastrophe. You'll shrug off disaster and famine and stroll fearlessly among wild animals. You'll be on good terms with rocks and mountains. Wild animals will become your good friends. You'll know that your place on earth is safe. You'll look over your goods and find nothing amiss. You'll see your children grow up, your family lovely and graceful as orchard grass. You'll arrive at your grave ripe with many good years, like sheaves of golden grain at harvest. Yes, this is the way things are, my word of honor. Take it to heart and you won't go wrong. Just as a point of reference, we must remember this truth to carry along with us as we study the many chapters to come, featuring back-and-forth conversations between Job and each of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. All three of them made the mistake of assuming that Job had committed some great sin that caused his suffering. Neither they nor Job knew of Satan's conversations with God as found in chapters 1 and 2. It really is human nature to blame people for their own troubles, but Job's story makes it clear that blame cannot always be attached to those whom trouble strikes. With that in mind, the Jesus Bible shares these thoughts about chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Eliphaz made broad and sweeping judgments about God's character based chiefly on the intensity of his friend's suffering. In these verses, he also insinuated that the demise of Job's children was due to Job's foolishness, questioned the depth of Job's faith, and since evil does not spring from the soil and trouble does not sprout from the earth, implied that Job was essentially the cause of his own suffering. These flawed accusations were based solely on Eliphaz's own assumptions and served only to intensify Job's anguish. Those are some very harsh accusations given what we already know. Wow. So before we move much further in today's episode, please know that the two resources I relied heavily on in this show's content are, of course, my NLT, Life Application Study Bible, as well as First Five's Suffering and Sovereignty Study. And, of course, links to both are found in today's show notes. Okay. Now that we have that little bit of housekeeping, so to speak, out of the way, let's continue. In verse 17, Eliphaz's statement was correct. It is a joy to be disciplined by God when we do wrong, because at times, God must discipline us to help us. This is similar to a loving parent disciplining his child. 
The discipline is not very enjoyable to the child, but it is essential to teach him or her right from wrong. Consider it from this perspective. Who loves his child more, the father who allows the child to do what will harm him, or the one who corrects, trains, and even punishes the child to help him learn what is right? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. It is truly never pleasant to be corrected and disciplined by God, but His discipline is a sign of His deep love for us. When God corrects us, see it as proof of His love and ask Him what He is trying to teach us. Realize that God is urging us to follow His paths instead of stubbornly going our own way. So even though Eliphaz is correct in his advice that it is a joy to be disciplined by God when we do wrong, it does not apply to Job in this case. As we know from the beginning of the book, Job's suffering was not a result of some great sin. This serves as a reminder that we too sometimes give people what we believe is excellent advice, only to learn that it does not apply to them and is therefore not very helpful at all, maybe even hurtful at times. When we offer counsel from God's Word, we should first take care to thoroughly understand a person's situation before giving advice, and even then hold our perceptions lightly. Now listen to Job chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 from the NIV, or the New International Version. Blessed is the one who God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For He wounds, but He also binds up. He injures, but His hands also heal. Right statement, wrong context seems to be an accurate way to consider what we see happening here. The Suffering and Sovereignty Study reads, We've all been near those who are hurting and felt the strain of wondering what to say or do. Deciding whether you've said or done too much or too little can feel weighty. In spite of the challenge, joining others in their dark places is both a privilege and a pain of being a Christian. After the staggeringly quick loss of his family, wealth, and health, Job and his friends spent seven days and seven nights in silence together. Job broke the silence with an anguished lament in chapter 3, and Eliphaz is the first of his friends who dares to speak into the situation. Eliphaz's argument isn't a complicated one. He believes that Job is suffering because he is being disciplined for some secret sin. While this is a perfectly reasonable explanation for some instances of suffering— It isn't what we know to be true about Job based on God's conversation with Satan. From Eliphaz's perspective, Job's suffering was an agent of discipline and punishment. But not only that, it would be an instrument of growth. Eliphaz gives a right statement in the wrong context. Discipline is a blessing, but Eliphaz does not have the authority or knowledge to declare that Job is being disciplined. Suffering is an instrument of growth, but Job is currently at his lowest and weakest point and a long way from his highest growth. Eliphaz was given an incredibly beautiful opportunity to speak encouragement and truth about God into Job's life at his most vulnerable, and he didn't do it. He instead took the opportunity to correct Job. When talking to others about their hurts and suffering, we must be incredibly careful how we encourage them. What we believe about the origin of their suffering will change the way we interact with them. It can seem helpful to try and figure out a reason for suffering, But honestly, we don't have that answer. Instead of speculating about the reason why they are suffering, we have the opportunity to support and love them, and most importantly, point them to the greatness of God. I doubt Eliphaz was being intentionally malicious, but he was being prideful and thoughtless. He had no way of knowing God's greater plan, and by speculating, he unintentionally brought more suffering on his friend. 
Bearing one another's hurts is one of our greatest privileges as a family of believers. But instead of bearing Job's burden, Eliphaz added to it. It can be difficult to extract a verse from Job, especially one spoken by his friends, and know if it's fully true or not. I find myself constantly reading and rereading and questioning the validity of a statement. The context of verses from Job is critical. If we take a verse like Job chapter 5, verse 27, which reads, We have examined this, and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. We might be tempted to believe that everything Eliphaz said was true, but when we read all that Eliphaz says to Job and let Scripture interpret Scripture, we know his advice wasn't always fully truthful. Before we move on here, let's take a moment to dig a bit deeper into Eliphaz's words as found in verses 17 through 26. Truthfully, his words in verses 17 and 18 that we read earlier in both the Message and New International Version translations show a view of discipline that has almost been forgotten or often dismissed in our day and age. Pain can help us grow. Full stop. Listen to that one more time and let that truth settle in your mind because it is both true and tough to consider, my friends. Pain can help us grow. As hard as they are to hear, these are good words for us to remember when we face hardship and loss in our lives. Because Job did not understand why he suffered, his faith in God had a chance to grow. Suffering can do the same in our lives if we let it. On the other hand, we must not make Eliphaz's mistake. God does not eliminate all hardship in our lives when we are following him closely. And good behavior is not always rewarded by prosperity. Rewards for good and punishment for evil are in God's hands and given out according to His timetable and purposes. Satan's ploy in all of this is to get us to doubt God's love and faithfulness toward us. And there is that word once again, my friends. Doubt. If you recall from our last episode, I linked to the current message series we are in right now out at H2O Church Attica, a message series called Doubting God. If you haven't had a chance to listen, I highly recommend you do because this message series is highlighting the ways doubt can actually build our faith. It's easy to think of doubt as a sign of a weak faith, but it's not. God isn't afraid of our doubts, so we don't have to be either. Truthfully, the strongest faith is not a faith that never doubts, but instead is a faith that grows through the doubts. Don't miss this, my friends, as these messages will help untangle some of our wrong thoughts about doubts in our faith. We will continue to see Job struggling to work out his doubt about God in life, so be sure to click those links in the show notes to hear more about Life Church's message series all about doubters, like Job, like me even, whose faith actually grew through the doubts. Moving on now to chapter 6 in the message translation, we find Job's reply to Eliphaz titled, God has dumped the works on me. Job answered, If my misery could be weighed, if you could pile the whole bitter load on the scales, it would be heavier than all the sand of the sea. Is it any wonder that I'm howling like a caged cat? The arrows of God Almighty are in me, poison arrows, and I'm poisoned all through. God has dumped the whole works on me. Donkeys bray and cows moo when they run out of pasture. So don't expect me to keep quiet in this. Do you see what God has dished out for me? It's enough to turn anyone's stomach. Everything in me is repulsed by it. It makes me sick. Press past the limits. All I want is an answer to one prayer, a last request to be honored. Let God step on me, squash me like a bug, and be done with me for good. At least I'd have the satisfaction of not having blasphemed the holy God before being pressed past the limits. Where's the strength to keep my hopes up? What future do I have to keep me going? 
Do you think I have nerves of steel? Do you think I'm made of iron? Do you think I can pull myself up by my bootstraps? Why, I don't even have any boots. My so-called friends. When desperate people give up on God Almighty, their friends at least should stick with them. But my brothers are fickle as a gulch in the desert. One day they're gushing with water from melting ice and snow, cascading out of the mountains. But by midsummer they're dry, gullies baked dry in the sun. Travelers who spot them and go out of their way for a drink end up in a waterless gulch and die of thirst. Merchant caravans from Tima see them and expect water. Tourists from Sheba hope for a cool drink. They arrive so confident, but what a disappointment. They get there and their faces fall. And you, my so-called friends, are no better. There's nothing to you. One look at a hard scene and you'd shrink in fear. It's not as though I asked you for anything. I didn't ask you for one red cent, nor did I beg you to go out on a limb for me. So why all this dodging and shuffling? Confront me with the truth and I'll shut up. Show me where I've gone off the track. Honest words never hurt anyone. But what's the point of all this pious bluster? You pretend to tell me what's wrong with my life, but treat my words of anguish as so much hot air. Are people mere things to you? Are friends just items of profit and loss? Look me in the eyes. Do you think I'd lie to your face? Think it over. No double talk. Think carefully. My integrity is on the line. Can you detect anything false in what I say? Do you trust me to discern good from evil? The Bible recap has these thoughts about what is happening here. So now we hear Job's response to Eliphaz. He defends himself. He's despairing, but he doesn't curse God. He knows his pain isn't the result of sinful actions. He knows his friend was wrong. One of the questions counselors train you to ask yourself in a relational difficulty is, where is my sin in this situation? What can I own from this situation? And that's an important question to ask, especially because we're often blind to our own sin and what we've contributed to the scenario. But there are times when life is hard and when you've just been sinned against and your troubles are not the result of something you contributed. We would never tell someone who's been raped or physically abused to think about what they did to deserve that or cause that. It's not always true that our circumstances are the result of our choices. Sometimes they're the result of a fallen world. Sometimes they are the result of other people's sinful choices. Let's take a moment for a deeper dive into what we just heard Job say in verses 2 and 3. If my misery could be weighed and my troubles be put on the scales, they would outweigh all the sands of the sea. That is why I spoke impulsively. Consider this. In times of grief, the last thing we expect to hear is correction. When hope begins to fade and worry grows, we are in the weakest emotional position to handle criticism. And yet that's exactly when some people feel compelled to voice their opinions, like Job's friends. Job chapter 5 ends with Eliphaz basically telling Job that he's the reason for his own suffering and to be thankful for it. As we already discussed, Eliphaz counsels, but consider the joy of those corrected by God. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. How easy Eliphaz makes it all sound. To him, the problem and solution are simple. Job sin, God punishes, Job should confess, and God will restore what Job lost. Eliphaz's response shows that he has no idea the depth of Job's grief, nor what it will take for Job to heal. Neither does he know what is happening in the heavenly realm, and yet he is confident his opinion is fact. Yikes. Because of that insensitivity, chapter 6 opens with a grieving Job on the rebound. Not only does he have to manage his broken heart, 
but now he feels the need to defend himself to his quote-unquote comforting friend. Job attempts to convey the depth of his grief to one who seems to have underestimated it when he states, If my misery could be weighed and my troubles be put on the scales, they would outweigh all the sands of the sea. That is why I spoke impulsively. Job calls his own words impulsive, and for this chapter and the next, we'll see Job ricochet from one belief to the next, revealing the chaos of his heart and mind. He bounces from believing God is shooting him with poison arrows, to wishing God would take his life, to begging for his friends to confirm his innocence. Eliphaz's comments have shaken Job deeply. Previously, Job was rock solid in the faith department, as evidenced by Job's comments to Satan in Job 1. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But the combination of grief and bad advice has almost undone him. In the coming chapters, we'll see Job swing like a pendulum, and who can blame him? Like most of us, Job was unprepared for what happened to him. Who can ever prepare for that kind of tragedy? Consequently, Job's emotions are battered, and yet we will see that Job eventually settles on the truth of God in his response. The truth that settled Job was not discovered in the dark. Instead, Job was sustained through the dark by the truth he learned in the light. We can learn from Job and apply this to our own lives. There is no way we can fully prepare our hearts for what is to come, but we can ground our hearts in the truth before trouble arrives. We can soak our minds in the truth of God's character his promises throughout scripture, and remember our testimonies of his faithfulness in the past. Then we will be like the wise man who built his house on a rock, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. The rain will fall, the floods will come, the winds will blow and beat on our house, but we won't fall. We will stand strong on the rock of God's word and the truth of his character. When the hard times come, and they will, we can hold tight to what we know to be true, and no circumstance or wrongly spoken word will shake us for long. We may stumble, but like Job, we will get up. As we heard in verses 8 and 9, in his grief, Job wanted to give in, to be freed from the discomfort of his life, to die even. But God did not grant Job's request. He had a greater plan for him, one we will see further develop throughout this book, but one that Job maybe never knew this side of heaven. If we are being honest, though, our own tendency, like Job's, is to want to give up and get out when the going gets rough. To trust God in the good times is commendable, but to trust Him during the difficult times tests us to our limits and often challenges our faith in a million different ways. Then in verses 14 through 23, Job makes a strong statement about how friends should act toward each other. In the NIV of Job chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Kindness in this instance means more than sending a card or taking a casserole. The Hebrew word is hesed and conveys loyalty or a joint obligation. This is more of a covenant promise than a friendly gesture here, friends. Job has only heard from one of his friends and is already starting to despair about the nature of his comforters. In fact, he compares his friend to undependable streams in the desert which can dry up when they are most needed. These streams would give life to desert travelers but could mean death if they dried up. Job speaks a truth that is still applicable today. We enjoy our friends in the good times, but we need them desperately in the bad times. And yet, in the hard times, friendships often become awkward, difficult, and confusing. Do we press in or give space? Do we speak or stay silent? 
I'm pretty sure we can agree that we are all learning from the book of Job, that sometimes friends can speak harmful words. But we should not interpret this to mean that it's safer to stay away. We weren't designed to go through life alone. We need each other. We all make mistakes for sure, but showing up in the hard times is a sign of loyalty that will speak love and support to our friends. Okay, let's hear more of Job's response to Eliphaz as we continue on by reading chapter 7. There's nothing to my life. Human life is a struggle, isn't it? It's a life sentence to hard labor. Like field hands longing for quitting time and working stiffs with nothing to hope for but payday, I'm given a life that meanders and goes nowhere. Months of aimlessness, nights of misery. I go to bed and think, how long till I can get up? I toss and turn as the nights drag on, and I'm fed up. I'm covered with maggots and scabs. My skin gets scaly and hard, then oozes with pus. My days come and go swifter than the clicking of knitting needles, and then the yarn runs out, an unfinished life. God, don't forget that I'm only a wisp of air. These eyes have had their last look at goodness, and your eyes have seen the last of me. Even while you're looking, there is nothing left to look at. When a cloud evaporates, it's gone for good. Those who go to the grave never come back. They don't return to visit their families. Never again will friends drop in for coffee. And so I'm not keeping one bit of this quiet. I'm laying it all out on the table. My complaining to high heaven is bitter, but honest. Are you going to put a muzzle on me? The way you quiet the sea and still a storm? If I say, I'm going to bed, then I'll feel better. A little nap will lift my spirits. You come and so scare me with nightmares and frighten me with ghosts that I'd rather strangle in the sheets than face this kind of life any longer. I hate this life. Who needs any more of this? Let me alone. There's nothing to my life. It's nothing but smoke. What are mortals anyway that you bother with them, that you even give them the time of day? That you check up on them every morning, looking in on them and seeing how they're doing. Let up on me, will you? Can't you even let me spit in peace? Even suppose I'd sinned. How would that hurt you? You're responsible for every human being. Don't you have better things to do than pick on me? Why make a federal case out of me? Why don't you just forgive my sins and start me off with a clean slate? The way things are going, I'll soon be dead. You'll look high and low, but I won't be around. So I'm just going to start with this thought. I'm pretty certain at this point we can all agree that the raw humanity of Job is revealed in Job chapter 7. Up until now, we've seen Job esteemed as a great man of faith and integrity, but his words here seem contrary to what we would expect from a person of such strong character. Job's words are brutally honest about how he feels his life is pointless, meaningless even. He can't eat. He can't sleep. He is discouraged and feels like a weary worker who never receives any pay. His days, though filled with relentless working and empty with no sense of achievement. His pain, both physical and emotional, is so intense that sleeplessness and reoccurring nightmares plague his tattered soul. Job can't find comfort or relief. He is losing hope. He is struggling. His strength is gone. He feels abandoned, and his life seems meaningless. It's as if Job has been given a one-way ticket headed nowhere, and all the long nights of misery and all the physical, relational, and emotional pain has taken its toll and left him confused. Job knows God is the ultimate authority over all. He knows God sees, watches over him, and is totally mindful of his intense suffering. Job also knows that God has the authority to stop it at any time. And Job repeatedly pleads with God to intervene and do something, even if it means death. 
because death would be a welcome change. As a matter of fact, we see in this chapter that eventually Job stopped talking to Eliphaz and began speaking directly to God. Job isn't blaming or condemning God. He is surrendered to him. But Job doesn't understand why God has made him the target of such suffering. Have you ever wrestled with why questions like these? Why so much pain and heartache? Why doesn't God intervene and do something? Why me? What is all this suffering accomplishing? Will this deep ache in my soul ever end? Apparently, Job wrestled with many why questions too. So what is impressive about Job in these verses? Job doesn't try to appear strong or brave or gloss over his pain by replying, I'm fine, like so many, myself included, tend to do. Nor does he attempt to be some spiritual giant by suffering in silence. He speaks up. He cries out. He owns and confesses his intense thoughts and emotions. Job is transparent and truthful. In response to his pain, he openly pours his heart out before God and reveals his anguish in a variety of ways. Job knows how to grieve, to mourn. He's not afraid to grapple with his pain and express his suffering by putting it into words. Words that desperately hurting world can relate to all these thousands of years later even. When we are struggling and battling deep in the depths of our souls, Job's words give us the language of lament. Job helps us see it's okay to be truthful and vulnerable about our pain before God. It takes humility to be this completely honest about our struggles. But when we are, we can be assured God will respond to our crying out to Him. When we wrestle with the struggles in our lives openly and honestly before God, it places us in the position to be amazed by God. Friends, I am constantly in wonder when He responds to my heart's cry in a real way. Moments when he brings clarity, wisdom, or understanding in the midst of our confusion, uncertainty, or difficulty. Moments when the light bulb will click on in our hearts or his word leaps off the page and speaks right to our struggle. Moments when we glimpse his glory in some tiny detail and we know it's from him because we have shared the details of our struggle intimately with him. It's in those moments when we will have our faith strengthened and experience the sweetest assurance of his tender care for us. When we put our pain into words and learn to genuinely express our hearts to God, He points us step by step down the path toward discovering truth. Truth about Himself and His character. Truth about ourselves. Truth about His unfailing Word and His grand plan for our lives. And isn't truth what we really need most when our hearts and minds are reeling out of control? I believe so, my friends, don't you? Maybe it's because we are not too far removed from our Holy Week and Easter conversation, but I just can't help be reminded of Jesus here. In his deepest, darkest moments of pain and suffering on the cross, Jesus gave voice to his why question too. Matthew chapter 27 verses 45 through 56 read, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has a close relationship with the Father. And yet in the darkness of his pain, he felt the sting of feeling forsaken. He didn't turn away from God as he experienced feeling abandoned by him. Like Job, Jesus cried out to God. He truthfully expressed how he felt. When our souls are overwhelmed by our struggles and desperation takes hold, don't deny it. Cry out to God. Learn how to accurately share exactly how you feel to God. It's so valuable to learn to put into words the pain of walking through sorrow and suffering. But I also want us to notice that God didn't answer Jesus when he cried out from the cross. And God remained silent when Job cried out from the ash heap. That doesn't mean God doesn't see our every tear and listen to every word we whisper. It simply means that we can't expect to understand everything while it's happening. 
All of our why questions may not be answered on this side of the pain and the struggle, or even this side of heaven. Even though our perspective may be limited, God sees the fulfillment of His plan, and He promises in His word that He will comfort those who weep. He will exchange beauty for our ashes. He loves us, and He will not forsake us. He is forever faithful. And as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, this present suffering cannot compare to the glory that is to be revealed. Oh, friends, I so know from the hardships in my own life that these truths are so easy to say and so much harder to feel, to believe, to live out. Lord, help us. The Jesus Bible's devotional regarding verses 17 through 21 reads, It would seem reasonable and normal for a person in Job's situation to ask this very common question, God, where are you? However, despite his intense level of suffering and lack of knowledge regarding the divine purpose for his adversity, Job never questioned God's presence or activity. Certain of God's involvement, he instead uttered a desperate plea for the Lord to simply leave him alone. But these sputtering statements from the lips of a man pressed by unrelenting despair reminds readers that everything that touches their lives is ultimately under the watchful eye of God. Centuries later, David's poetic writing gave new meaning to Job's anguished plea. Overwhelmed by the vastness and majesty of the heavens compared to humankind, David was humbled by God's constant presence and care, as he references in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Much of the glory and honor ascribed to humanity by the Lord at creation was lost when Adam chose to disobey. But what was obscured by sin has been restored through the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christ was willing to be made lower than the angels for a little while in his incarnation, as is said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 so that through faith it became possible for believers to be once again crowned with glory and honor. Amazing. Just amazing, right? Before we end our time together, friends, let's pray. Father God, our time spent in the book of Job is heavy, whether we are in our own hard season of struggle or not. You alone know the secret places in our hearts and the depths of the suffering we all experience. As we struggle through this life in various seasons, help us always remember to turn to you first to build our lives on the truths found in your word and all we are learning about your character in our study times together, so that when hard times come, our faith will stand. When we face hardship and loss in our lives, help us remember that pain can help us grow in our faith. Because Job did not understand why he suffered, his faith in you had a chance to grow. We ask you to remind and convict us in those hard moments that suffering can do the same in our lives if we allow you to work through those times. Lord God, we also ask you to guide us to be people who can bring comfort into the hardest and most heartbreaking circumstances for those you place in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, as we are nearing the end of today's episode, can I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast? Why should you subscribe, you ask? Because that way you don't have to go find it. It comes to you free delivery. If you want to subscribe, all you have to do is go back to the main page for the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Frame podcast, wherever you're listening right now, and click subscribe. Subscribing is the best way to never miss an episode. I will just show up in your podcast app ready to study with you. So I'll see you right back here next time, and the next time, and every time after that. Well, you get the idea, right? And so if you've liked this episode, could you share it with a friend, subscribe, rate, review, you know, do all the things people like to do with a podcast? I sure do want to thank you in advance because those are all the absolute best ways to help others find out about this show. 
please be sure to check out the resources I feature each episode in the show notes. I share them because I believe they are a very valuable way for you to take your study times even further. I so hope you aren't missing out on these resources to dig deeper after our time together and this episode ends. You can find the show notes by swiping up on your podcast app screen to see them below. But if you can't find them there, they're always available at the mfaring.com website in the show notes section of the podcast pages. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.